This is Payments Innovation. We take you deep into the DNA of digital finance with some of the most respected voices in the industry. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. Today, we're going to try to unpick the topic of how the world's payment schemes are being stitched together and what this means for consumers, for businesses, and for the wider financial ecosystem. I'm your host, Piers Murray, and I am delighted and actually slightly relieved to be joined today by two absolute heavy hitters in the cross-border space with over 40 years of experience between them. So with me here today are Leo Lippis, CEO of Lippis Advisors, and David Rees, who is Director of Strategic Partnerships here at Currency Cloud. Thanks for having us, Piers. Yes, thank you for me too. Now, I think as is usual in financial services, we're often sort of using different terms perhaps to describe the same or a similar thing. You know, we, we talk about stitching together or global connectivity, sometimes payment interlinkage or payment interoperability. I think probably we need to come back to some basics, maybe a 101. What are we actually talking about here when it comes to payment scheme interlinkage, payment scheme interoperability? I think the idea is that when you look historically at how cross-border payments have been achieved, right, it's typically been done through correspondent banking. This goes back more than 100 years. And so the idea there really is that one bank sends another bank a message that says, debit my bank's account at your bank and you need to credit your customer with the equivalent amount of money. But the way in which things are headed these days, the idea of interlinking domestic payment systems or national payment systems is the idea that the national payment infrastructures of each country or of each currency or of each region can link together directly with each other and therefore leverage the economies of scale, the uh, straight through processing uh, ability and the efficiencies of domestic processing systems by linking those together directly with others. Now, this opportunity has really only arisen within the last 10 years or so as real-time payment systems have become, become increasingly common around the world. We now see them in over 60 countries and what that means is we then have the opportunity in these 60 plus those that will come online over the coming years to link those infrastructures together with one another and create efficiencies and cross-border payments that haven't been possible. Brilliant. Great overview. And, and Dave, I suppose, why, why is this important? Why, why should anyone care? Well, I, th I think there's a variety of reasons why we should care. The, the first of all is definitely the expectation of demand coming from people who use um, real-time payments and indeed have also a need to, to send money internationally. And that for me sort of breaks down into just two sort of distinct camps. One, you've got the, the retail consumer, um, and that might be recurring payments being sent home if they're working abroad, or it might be in case of emergency. Take the, the quake in Turkey as a moment where you can't wait two, three, four days for funds to clear an account. You need that money instantaneously. When it comes to the more the, the, the SMB or SME, the, the, the small businesses, it's very much about how they can, they can manage their cash cycle, their, their cash conversion cycle to make sure that they've got sufficient capital, they've got sufficient money in their business to, to continue operating. And I think as the global need to to operate in these two spaces becomes higher and greater, that's that's the reason why we should care about it. And, and maybe, Leo, before we just sort of talk about what what is actually happening in the space at the moment, what have been some of those other challenges of the incumbent cross-border payments ecosystem for both end users, consumers, businesses alike at, at one end, as well as for maybe banks and payment service providers who are facilitating some of those transactions? There's a lot, I think, to unpack in, in, in that question. So when you look at some of the current challenges in cross-border payments, I mean, one key one is cost. Um, they're expensive and, and, and have been for a long time. 
Costs have come down in recent years uh, as a result of competition, as a result of efficiencies that the industry itself has pursued, but they're still substantially more expensive than, than domestic payments. There are lots of reasons why they, why they do cost more. And so that, that's a challenge, of course, for the banks and the PSPs to manage. But from a, from, from a user's perspective, right, they cost more. They also take longer. A typical domestic payment clears in most countries same day, uh, and certainly within a real-time system within a matter of a few seconds. And a cross-border payment, okay, can take as long as a week, depending upon how far it's going. Um, so again, the, the, the differences there are really quite dramatic. The transparency of it is another is another challenge, at least for consumers. Once I send a cross-border payment, I don't really know where it is. I don't know if the recipient's gotten it unless the recipient tells me. I don't know when it's going to get there. I don't know how, how long it's going to take. I don't even know how much it's going to cost me, right? So there's all these sort of these uncertainties surrounding but surrounded by it. I actually did an experiment a couple of years ago. I actually had... Uh, several bank accounts at the same uh, in the United States and several here in Germany where I live. And I actually sent three identical transactions, the exact same amount from the same bank in Germany to the same bank in the United States and three different amounts arrived. Yeah. They arrived on the same day. I'll give them that. Okay. They got, they got on the same day. It took about two and a half, two days, about two business days, but three different amounts arrived. And this is not that long ago. This is like two years ago. Okay. Wow. So the point is, it, it points to the to the to the the complexity of the system. The fact that even the same payment sent on the same day from the same bank to another bank, okay, there seems to be some arbitrary things happening in between that nobody that nobody can can really predict in advance. And so this unpredictability, I think, is, is the biggest. That was one of the biggest issues from an end user's perspective. And certainly, to to just follow on from that, so the the unpredictability for the consumer also creates more more hazardous or, or more variation for the financial institution that's providing that service because then they have to deal with inquiries and requests and again all of these things drive up the overall cost of providing the service so if you can have a degree of standardization it allows the, the the scaling of any sort of international instant payment solution which again drives adoption which again drives further scaling so it's it's that flywheel effect that certainly we're, we're looking to try and achieve it is all of those manual processes that may have to happen in the unhappy parts that, that really start to quite quickly uh, mount up and provide a, a significant challenge for Correct. financial institutions. And there's, there's even more unpredictability that, that almost gets baked into the system as well. Like, you know, I mean, when you send a, a cross-border payment through your bank today, you have the option to carry all the cost yourself, what's called an hour payment, right? Then there's the shared cost between the, the sender and the receiver. And then there's the, the Ben payment where the beneficiary bears all the costs. And you would think as a naive consumer, as someone outside the industry, you would think that Regardless of who bears the cost, the cost should be the same end to end, but it's not. If you send the same payment, you know, our Ben or share, you're going to get three different amounts on the other end too. I've tried it. I love the fact that as a payments expert, you are doing all of these experiments <laughs> day to day in the international payment space is brilliant. Um, and actually that, that story about, you know, sending those different payments, payment amounts also resonates with this idea in the global digital economy where you can access data and information at your fingertips in real time in so many different spaces. And yet sometimes when sending money across borders, you can actually get on a flight and land in the destination country quicker than perhaps potentially the money will arrive. So maybe let's just move on to talking about, you know, some of the, the, the progress, the change, what's happening in this space. Um, you know, we, we've, we again hear of lots of acronyms, BIS is one, IXB, maybe GPI. Maybe, Leo, you could just give us an overview of some of the, the real-life use cases or cross-border solutions that um, are or are being implemented or have recently come to light. I guess the only limitation on this really is how much time do you want me to take here? Because I think there, there are quite a number of different things going on. I mean, so 
you know, one of the, one of the earlier links that's been happening that links together real time infrastructures to create a cross border payment system ha- was happening between Singapore and Thailand. This happened several years ago, um, where the Singaporean system and the Thai system linked together what they call a proxy database, one that links together the the telephone number and a, and a background bank account, um, so that consumers in either Thailand or Singapore. Uh, can walk up to a point of sale or enter a telephone number, uh, scan a QR code, okay, and send a payment from their own bank account in their home country to something in the other country. They also just a few weeks ago launched a similar link between Singapore and India on the same on the same basis. So linking up Singapore's fast system with uh, with India's UPI. So those are a couple of things that are going that was one of some of the early ones. We're also seeing a linkage in probably the most important currency corridor in the world between the euro and the US dollar, where the clearinghouse and EBA clearing uh, are in pilot stage of a system they've, they've dubbed IXB uh, for instant cross border, but banks are testing it live. The BIS, which we talked about a few minutes ago, um, has uh, with their innovation hub in Singapore, uh, also put a, put together a, uh, a system they dubbed Project Nexus, uh, which creates a hub, uh, sort of a hub and spoke system for connecting up instant payment systems all, all over the world. Now that's really in the earliest stages of conceptualization and implementation, um, but we're expecting that uh, to, have a, to have a big impact in, in the coming years. Brilliant. And, and Dave, from, from your sense, is this really... Uh, from a retail perspective, or maybe a lower value instant payment real uh, retail use case, um, or actually, are you starting to see that SMB use case emerge um, in parallel across these uh, some of the, the the models that Leo has just described? Well, certainly, the, the examples that Leo has given is they're they're not just being done for the sake of it. There's obviously got to be underlying demand. And I think that sort of leads into like a, a nice segue in the conversation when you can think about at what altitude do I want to try and solve this problem? And so, Leo, you've alluded to um, these these domestic payment schemes that are being knitted together at much more of their sort of governmental or regulatory level. But then what are the other actors who play in this space who could also offer a comparable, possibly even a better, faster or cheaper service? Um, so thinking like global banks or indeed it's more the the global fintechs, so which Currency Cloud would probably cast themselves in the latter category. And that comes to a, a, a qualification process where you think about, well, how many people need to solve this problem? And again, you use the example of the, the euro dollar flows, which is obviously there's a large proportion of the population, the global population, who could, who could utilize this. Um, how urgent is the problem to go and solve? And then you can decide, well, what is the best actor to try and solve that problem? Because while certainly for me, the some of the initiatives that you've just mentioned there, that I think they're crucial for the global economy to continue to develop. But I dare I say it, when you're dealing with those sort of um, national or, or international level agreements and uh, between governments, it frequently takes a lot longer. Whereas if you're dealing with the slightly smaller, more nimble organizations, even banks for that matter, who could who could perhaps move a bit quicker and, and solve a problem to a satisfactory level and sort of like cover that initial urge to, to make sure that we're satisfying as much of the population as possible. So that for me is a, a really interesting thing. And it then plays into um, the execution of any service and how it's actually delivered to the consumer, how, how readily they pick it up. So all these things are, are very much forefront for what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years in this space. Okay, fantastic. So I guess that speed to market is, is, is kind of one crucial difference here between maybe that, that central bank um, interlinkage versus perhaps what, what other banks or, or fintechs might be doing. That's certainly my perception. Yeah. Leo, what other, what other, I guess, core differences, key differences do you see between those two fairly distinct models? Davis is entirely 
correct in pointing that out, right? That, that there are that there are private sector solutions that achieve similar results in some cases more efficiently. Um, and I think that when you look, at, I think it's going to might be a matter of horses for courses here, right? The question then becomes which solution is better at solving which problem and in which context. Um, and so it seems to me that there are certain currency quarters, say like Euro US dollar, where you're going to have very high flows both of low value as well as high value payments that could flow through these systems all the way up to the maximum amount that they can handle. But then there are probably more exotic locations where those kind of linkages can't be justified. You know, with the, simply the volumes aren't there and there where you're going to see more niche applications, more, more niche providers who are going to take up those kinds of implementations. So I think that when it comes down to that, uh, you, you can imagine you know, the coexistence of both types of solutions in the future. And, and it's going to be a matter of, it's not really a matter of, of what's better full stop, but rather a question of what's better for this particular use case, for this particular quarter, for this particular problem that we're trying to solve. Brilliant. And as a product person, I love this idea of coming back to the core user problem and really trying to solve for real life challenges, problems, needs, and wants and desires from, uh, from, from human beings in a variety of different, um, different roles. Just, just harking back to actually something that you touched, touched on earlier in the call. Um, this sounds really, really difficult to go and achieve both from in both models from a sort of national central bank stitching together perspective, as well as from some of the, the other models that you've described. What would you say are some of the key or potential impacts that maybe banks and payment service providers across the industry will start to see with with further stitching together of, of these schemes? The answer really is an, is an operational one, which is that if it doesn't pass all the checks very, very quickly within a matter of seconds, it's going to be rejected. And it's going to actually wind its way back through the infrastructures, back to the sending, to the sending bank, again, within a matter of seconds. And the sender has complete transparency about it. And that's the objective, right, that you want to achieve, is that the sender knows it's been accepted or it hasn't been accepted, and they need to either try again or find another route. So that's one of the issues, right? The, another issue, I think, is, uh, is fraud. So real-time payments means, unfortunately, real-time fraud. And that's where the real issue here is, I think. It's not bouncing stuff around from, from regulated jurisdiction and regulated bank to another regulated bank, that all becomes very traceable. It's when it becomes untraceable that it really becomes an issue. Interesting. Let's let's come back to that point around, around crypto, actually, and, and where this goes next. Just before we go there, I suppose one, one last question for, for Dave on this, which is there seem to be these pockets of activity happening around the world. But how far does this go? How far does this extend out? Do we need to stitch together all of the, the national um payment systems around the world my initial response is uh, uh, it becomes a point in time question where what do we have to do in the next two years the next five years the next 10 years the next 50 years it's what's the most appropriate tool for the problem at hand there's a lot of customers or a lot of consumers a lot of businesses and there's a lot of cross-border flow that certainly justifies a a much more high level strategic relationship between governments between clearing systems whereas if you're looking at slightly more niche corridors dare say are there private market solutions um, that can try and tailor bespoke user experiences for the underlying customer use cases. So that to me is is, is a more natural way to solve this problem in the short term. Um, I think there is probably a long-term goal of trying to make more connectivity and, and more robust scalable processes, which will require national regulators or international agreements. But again, how quickly that has to happen is up for debate. 
And, and, and Leo, Dave's mentioned national regulators, international agreement, governments getting involved in trying to make this happen. Who is actually leading the charge on this? Who should be leading on leading the charge on this to effectively bring this to life for, for consumers, for businesses in the global financial ecosystem? Well, I think it's the, the PSPs who are trying to better serve the needs of their customers, right? I think initially, you know, I, I expected to see some resistance from, from the large banks. Um, but actually, you know, I've been surprised, pleasantly surprised at how quickly they've embraced this because I think that they see the operational efficiencies that result from it. They see the, the benefit to their customers, the, the improved service that they can provide, the, the greater transparency for themselves, uh, the improved liquidity management across multiple currencies, and so on and so forth. So there are a variety of benefits, I think, for them. And, and I think there are benefits to consumers as well. And then, of course, I think that you could ignore the fact that, that, that this is all being pushed forward as well by competition within the industry. Um, the companies like Currency Cloud and others done a good job, I think, of pushing the industry in ways that, that it probably didn't want to be pushed initially. Yeah, totally agree. I remember being at Cybos probably five, six years ago, one of the, the largest, if not the largest banking conference in the world. And the narrative was all around fintechs really being the, the enemy in some cases to, to the traditional banks. But that narrative certainly seems to have shifted. And I think, you know, that, that echoes what you've, what you've just said, that there is this room for probably more partnership and collaboration to achieve initiatives like this. Absolutely. And, and I think the banks increasingly see the fintech industry as, as, as partners rather than, rather than enemies. And I think you're absolutely right to point that out, Piers. Perfect. And Dave, Director of Strategic Partnerships. <laughs> this is, this is in, your, in your bag. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I mean, again, I've been doing this for over 10 years and, and certainly the, um, the, the death of the global bank is something that's long been forecast, but I don't think I've ever read any obituaries quite yet. They recognize, certainly to Leo's point, that actually the, the fintech ecosystem um, and that partnership element, that collaboration with, with other organizations, that's actually the way to better understand and monetize your existing client base and win new customers. Because dare I say it, when you make a payment, the purpose isn't just making a payment. There's the underlying need, the job to be done behind that transaction, which is something that banks want to understand. And, and if fintechs are better placed to help that bank get that level of customer data, then absolutely they can, they can find more intuitive ways to, to service that, that client segment. The general consensus is that one financial institution will never out-innovate the market on everything all the time. So you've got to work together. You've got to look for new ideas and look for that innovation spark. And then when you find those those partnerships in, in the market, work together to make them successful. Perfect. So, so if we then kind of get our crystal balls out and look into the future, Dave, where does this go from where we're at today over the next two, five, or even 10 years out? Unfortunately, my crystal ball is, is, is rarely that good um, but we'll certainly give it a try. Um, so I, I suspect to say that the initiatives that have been launched that Leo alluded to in the early part of the conversation, they will continue to progress, but I suspect slower than most people would like, um, just because of the nature of, of sticking together to large, highly scaled domestic payment systems and try and knitting them together. That's a really, really complicated thing to do. So what I'm going to suspect is certainly in the short term and the, maybe even the middle distance, we're looking at these fintechs partnering with banks, finding niche corridors where there's value, where there's sufficient flow to justify a slightly more robust solution, and then servicing the underlying customer demographic, be it be retail consumers or small to medium-sized enterprises. And then from there, you're going to get a pattern of where the demand is. Leo, if we come to the how or maybe even the what, what would you say are those those key trends or actual uh, developments that are happening in the short and midterm future that will enable us to get to that 
sort of vision that they've just outlined. Well, I think one of the key things that I think is going to happen is real-time systems will continue to mature. You would also, one obvious thing you'd say is, uh, is again, as, as the systems mature, you should see more use cases being catered for within those linkages. But as Dave rightly points out, it's not a panacea, right? It's not going to cure all ills, okay, in all markets for all reasons. The goal of all of this is to make it cheaper, faster, better, right, for everybody involved. And, and that's ultimately what we're, what we're trying to do, which is serve the customer's needs better. We touched on this very briefly earlier on, but there would be a podcast in both payment space or the innovation space wouldn't be complete without um, a bit more of a mention on cryptocurrency. There was an article I read this morning around something called Project Icebreaker, which is using CBDC, so central bank digital currencies to, uh, to start to link together Sweden, Norway, and I think it was Israel, um, again, a BIS-led initiative. Where do you see the role of digital assets, cryptocurrency or uh, stable coins or central bank digital currency starting to play in this space? I think it's safe to say that the, the general perception of it, the the crypto as an asset class has taken a hit. Um, you see the number of institutions fail. There's certainly a, maybe a stronger perception that there's there's something untoward that sits behind this this wonderful blockchain that's been created. But I still think that there are there are elements within this that that present opportunity. And I think certainly cent central bank backed um, digital currencies is something that we could see having a much greater impact on on the way we we, we move money. Perfect. And, and Leo, just to finish off here, when we're thinking about things like stablecoin or central bank digital currency, CBDCs, do you see a different level of appetite from banks and from payment service providers in using those types of digital assets as a means to effectively transfer value across borders? So certainly we're seeing a number of experiments within that space with, with, with stablecoins. With regard to CBDCs, though, um, I think it's too early. I think is the answer. You know, when you look at, at, at what's happening with CBDCs right now, they're really only available in, 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 in four countries, um, most of which, okay, except with the exception of China, okay, are not countries that really have a big impact on global trade. What's happening is banks are waiting to see what central banks are going to do with CBDCs. And I think it's going to take another three to five years before we really see any large scale implementations. Until we have some kind of system like that, and interoperability of these CBDCs in a way that allows them to be exchanged freely for each other in the same ways that we can do that with, with, with fiat currencies today. Um, I think we're, so I, th I think the answer is we're a long way away before it becomes a real, a real substitute. Brilliant. Um, and, I, and to finish off, are there any last parting words of advice or wisdom for, for listeners on this topic? Anything that we've not shared already um, that you would like to, to, to share and, and finish off the, this episode with? I guess what I'd say is that the, the trend toward, toward operationally more efficient cross-border payments is not to be stopped. This has been happening for quite some time, and I think that it's going to make international trade, international travel, international remittances, um, all these things, it's going, to, it's going to really aid that over the coming years. Perfect. And Dave, you often refer to within Currency Cloud Walls as the Oracle. Um, any last <laughs> parting, uh, parting uh, pieces of advice? For me, it's, um, it harks back to a solution that solves a real problem um, and a big enough problem to justify it. So when you typically take a capability or a, a corridor or a, a payments capability to the market, you're looking for something that offers that 10x level of improvement on what existed before. So when you're looking at banks or fintechs looking to enable this, that's the sort of like, you know, benchmark you set for yourself. And again, my firm belief is that's achieved through partnership, through collaboration, 
and really understanding the end customer that you're trying to service, be it a retail consumer or a small to medium-sized enterprise, or indeed large um, corporates that have got a, a global need to move money around the world. And that for me is, is going to be a really, really interesting place because that's where you see the innovation develop fastest. Awesome. Um, I think all that's left to say is that it's been an absolute pleasure, certainly from my end, chatting to you both about what on earth payment interoperability, interlinkage, stitching together of payment schemes actually is, um, and how they, that's all starting to happen in front of our eyes, as well as what we can expect over the coming years. Um, Leo, if there are any listeners looking for more information about any of these topics, where can they find you online, on social? Lipusadvisors.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much to you both for joining. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. Keep innovating. Thanks for joining us here on Payments Innovation. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the show. Connect with Currency Cloud on Twitter or LinkedIn to find out more. And remember to subscribe by your favorite podcast player. Until next time.